DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us for today's show. Glad to have you with us. Getting a little tense out there, Jim Galloway. People are starting to worry. They're heading to Kroger, Publix, wherever they buy their groceries. (laughs) Or the the liquor store. Or the liquor store. (laughs) That's Jim Galloway, of course, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He is with us on Mondays and Fridays. You read him in the Dead Tree edition of the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays. And he continues to oversee whatever they're calling the political blog at the AJC. The political today. insider. <laughs> the insider. On, at AJC.com. Okay. All right. Jim, we're glad that you're here, of course. Across from you, glad to have back Audrey Haynes. She's a political science professor at the University of Georgia and oversees a program that's really kind of interesting. It prepares people for careers in the political sphere, the applied Applied Politics Politics Program program at UGA. Hi, Audrey. How are you? Glad to be here. Doing well. We're glad to have you here. Across from you is uh, someone who now she herself is a professor of political science, assistant professor, but who's who's worrying about that? Uh, Karen Owen, who's out at West Georgia. And you were uh, at one point, your relationship to Audrey was... I was Audrey's teaching assistant. Wow. My first year wait, graduate school. Wait, say it the right way. My best teaching assistant. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was one of many teaching assistants. But... And, and uh, you, so you're teaching political science at West Georgia University. You're from right up in Cherokee County. You're a Georgia yes. uh, 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 native. And you also are the director of the Thomas B. Murphy Center for Public Service at the University of West Georgia. Yes, where we were trying to help students get more engaged in the public service. Wonderful. We talk about Tom Murphy with some regularity. His name comes up for us old-timers. His office is there at West Georgia. It is. With all of the paraphernalia. Yeah, with all the crazy paraphernalia that the speaker used to have in his office. Um, And joining us from the safety of Macon, Georgia, (laughs) (laughs) Chris Grant. No need for you to get out your earmuffs. How are you? Uh, we don't think there's a need for earmuffs, but yesterday there was a little twinge in the forecast that made us think a little bit. Doing well. <laughs> Chris Grant is the head of the political science department at Mercer, and you too have a relationship with Audrey Haynes, right? Yes, we overlapped in graduate school. Chris has his um, PhD from UGA, and I left after getting my master's and went on to Ohio State. But I think we overlapped for a year, and we've known each other for a very long time. He runs a great program. The, the Ivory Tower we is did such indeed. a small place. It is. We go to conferences. We actually talk yeah. to each other. We write with each other. Yes, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a pleasure to be with you. We're, well, I'm feeling already outmatched. I mean, I'm a college grad. I'm a dropout. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to try to get through the show. Right, let's start with, uh, let, let, by the way, of course, you can watch us on Facebook Live by going to the GPB news page on Facebook or tweet us at politicsgpb. Um, so let's start with the weather because in Georgia... Uh, the weather becomes a political issue, Jim Galloway, and nothing made that clear. Well, two events made that right. terribly clear to us. We had a big one in 2010, was it not? And then again in 2014. 2014 was snow jam when the state and the city failed to prepare the way they might have. They would say they were caught off guard. It brought this metro region to the biggest standstill I've ever seen in my 30-plus years here. And so it's it's kind of like floods in the in the Chinese dynasties, you know? I mean, <laughs> they, they, I mean, just a, a couple snowflakes can topple a, topple a regime here. Yeah, and Georgia became—it it, it caused then-Governor Deal no end of misery. Uh, Kasim Reed took a lot of the blowback for it, and it got to the point where the national news services were mocking— Georgia, I remember Al Roker got into a big fight with Kasim Reed over how the city handled the Karen, you're nodding about it. I do remember, and, and you end up taking a hit for not being prepared enough or not paying attention at the right time. And I think Governor Kemp today is trying to jump ahead of that curve and show that his administration is going to be proactive here. Well, go ahead. And, 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 and look, he's calling a snow day for everybody I pretty much above I-20, I think. 
Uh, but but the, one of the one of the reasons he can do that is because we haven't had any so far this year. Right. You've got you've got school systems that have banked a number of days, and and they'll be fine now. Well, what you know, I said there've been a couple of days, uh, and of course. Nathan Deals, or was it Sonny Perdue's? No, it was Nathan's, wasn't it? First inaugural was forced indoors because right. mm-hmm. of weather. But what I was thinking about is pertinent to also this week. The big problem was 2000 oh, when the city super- iced over, and it was another Super Bowl here in Georgia. And once again, Georgia took incredible uh, uh, hits from the national media for not being able to handle a little ice on the road. And and you've got to know that Kemp and even uh, uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms knows that they don't want they don't want those that, that video of paralyzed vehicles uh, out there, even as people are coming in, even if the weather's going to be fine. Chris, how do you think folks down your way? Do, do they observe the the, uh, the things that we go through over a little snow here in Metro Atlanta um, differently than we see them here? Are they more likely to look at them and shrug their shoulders, or do they too? Do you think? Do you all see signs when it isn't handled well of incompetence that you need to worry about? How, how does that play out for you down there? Oh, we're even more terrified of snow down here <laughs> than you are up there. I mean, when there is even a chance in the forecast, um, we'll get all of our schools closed down, with the exception, of course, of Mercer University, which never closes, but everything else shuts down in Bibb County. Um, uh, courthouse, everything will be shut down. School system shuts down. I um, We had an exchange student one time in high school, and um, there was a chance of snow in the forecast, and everything shut down. And the next day he was out playing soccer, it was 50 degrees. So um, it, we take it very seriously. We're very concerned. We're particularly concerned about kids on buses and that kind of way. Sure. All right. So, Audrey, let's listen. Brian Kemp and uh, Mayor Bottoms had a news con- joint news conference this morning because they do want to tell uh, the people of the metro area that they're ready this time. Here's just a little of what Brian Kemp had to say. That's the concern, again, that the cold temperature gets here very rapidly, like it did back in uh, 2014. And because of that, I mean, that's why we've got to be proactive. I mean, look, I hope it doesn't freeze. I hope we don't have any problems. But we've seen before when we aren't proactive, you have black ice, you get wrecks on the connector. It created gridlock and chaos, quite honestly. And this week would be even worse, being that it's the Super Bowl. All right. So the governor saying to the people of the state, I'm brand new in this job and I'm not going to mess it up, Audrey. No, he's saying just what he needs to say. That's important. And Atlanta is all about business. And if you're uh, if you're not working, then that's a problem. So good for them. All right. Well, we'll see how it unfolds. Just a little note from uh, the Political Rewind crew. We're hoping we're going to be able to do a live show tomorrow. We've got we've talked to a couple of our panelists and they've said that they're going to do everything they can. They want to do the show. So We'll see. I do want to caution you that if things get bad and conditions uh, dictate that our folks can't get here, we already have a show that we're ready to play, a recorded show, but we're hoping that we'll be here live. No, I can stay home and do it by phone. There you mm-hmm. go. <laughs> <laughs> right. you, two days a week is asking a lot of you as it is, Mr. Galloway. Let's move on. Uh, and Jim, as long as you've got the ball, let's start with you. The Georgia Democratic Party... Um, I think did something this weekend. First of all, they did something historic. They elected the first African-American chair to the state party, Nakima Williams, state senator Nakima Williams. They also added some other younger faces that suggest they are ready to kind of move into a new direction as a result of this uh, race in 2018. Right. Um, You have... uh, uh, Clarkson Mary, uh, Mayor uh, Terry Ted Terry Ted Terry he is uh, he is he is mayor of uh, what he called the most diverse square mile in the entire nation Clarkson yeah Clarkson and and uh, he's vice chair he is which which eh, you know maybe it means something maybe it means a lot uh, but it it does mean that he gets a seat on the uh, Democratic National Committee yeah he'll be at the convention. Uh, they elected other officers. Now you know it's it's different once you get down to, to your congressional chairs, but your but your top uh, your top officers there at the state party, kind of in all in their twenties or in their thirties, and they're all from Metro Atlanta. Ted Terry uh, got headlines for uh, being the first uh, mayor in a municipality in Georgia to uh, 
decriminalize marijuana, uh, Audrey? Well, you know, the times they are changing. I mean, that is, you know, this has been going on for some time. And now what we're seeing with our parties, in both parties, I think they're moving towards reflecting the changes that have gone on in the state. So this is a perfectly natural thing to happen in, as a reflection of that change. You know, it's interesting, uh, uh, Chris and uh, Karen, in 2014, when Democrats thought that with Jason Carter running for governor and with Michelle Nunn running for U.S. Senate, they might have an opportunity to take at least one of those seats back. Of course, they lost both, and largely they ran the old traditional yellow dog Democrat kind of campaigns. You know, they appealed to those conservative Georgians who used to be Democrats and who they hoped they might get back in the fold, in part because of the famous parentage of both of those candidates. But, Chris, that didn't work. And so nope. now, and at the time, Chris, uh, after that election, Kasim Reed, Theron Johnson, political consultant and a very powerful figure in the Democratic Party here, uh, really wanted to depose DeBose Porter as state chair uh, because they felt that DeBose had failed to move the party forward. Uh, they didn't do it. DeBose got reelected. So it's interesting that perhaps now, as a result of the Stacey Abrams election, where she came so close, the party recognizes they got to move on. Well, and I think that when I talk to some of my political consulting friends around here, they will lament that Democrats are leaving the the possibility of rural Georgia, and they're not going to do anything down here. But let's face it, for 20 years, that's not where Democratic votes have been coming from. That's certainly not where the Abrams campaign found a way to expand. One of the things I sometimes say is the Democratic Party really is three bases. Um, there's a African-American base or minority base. There's a young people base. And then there's also a kind of old, progressive, mostly white base. And all of them um, need different things. But if you look at that, there are two bases that have been left out of leadership for an awfully long time. And the new leaders certainly get at changing that. Mm -hmm. And to speak to that too, Chris, is that changing demographics for Metro Atlanta. So most of Georgia's population is living in this Metro Atlanta area. And for the Democratic Party to recognize that their leadership needs to focus too on Metro Atlanta and to the young folks who are here. And Bill, as you mentioned, in 2014, when you're running a Carter and Nunn who have family heritage of Georgia, that speaks to a different generation that now currently lives in Metro Atlanta who have no connection to the Carter family, really, or a connection to the Nunn family. And at that time, Abrams is making emerge as the House Minority Leader. So she's gaining traction and building a base within Metro Atlanta. And I think the Democratic Party is seeing now we can shift and pay attention to where our folks are and generate and mobilize more people. So I would also argue um, that, you know, given what you've said about the bases, there's still this likely uh, scenario where we're going to see the Democratic Party not give up on those rural areas, too. I mean, they are investing time and effort in trying to grow their support there by focusing on things like health care. And um, a lot of the things that they talk about are issues that if they push them, if they if they are persuasive, if they go out there and work those areas, they may be able to bring people in. I think people are getting tired of not, um, you know, having that level of success of being worried about their health care. Yeah, and Medicaid expansion well, is that one is, is that one issue, Chris? Well, I would. No, I was just going to say, if there's anything on that issue that I would have expected to spur some movement amongst particularly white rural voters in Georgia, it would have been all the hospital closings. Mm -hmm. And that seems to not have gained a whole lot of traction there. Now, maybe it will in the years to come, but so far it hasn't shown a whole lot of traction. When I see my students, um, the more rural you come from, the more likely you are to be a pretty strong Republican. Not saying that it's perfect, but a lot of that has some, some re relevance to truth. And I would agree with Karen that the metro area is now, what, 60% of the state? And to say, oh, we've got to worry about the rest of the state not concentrating on the metro areas, saying we're going to worry about 40 percent of the state and leave behind 60 percent. Well, I was going to follow that up with the one thing that tells me that perhaps it is gaining some traction is that the elites in the Georgia Republican Party are paying attention to that issue. Oh. And they're doing it. Which, are we talking about Medicaid expansion? Medicaid expansion, in general? 
healthcare in general. Okay. They may put in some of those, uh, you know, symbolic things like work requirements, but they care. And recently when they were talking about the changes in the party, they were talking about we cannot only sell, you know, polarized, divisive tactics. We have to bring something to the table that makes people better off. Well, and I I just add that one of my young um, uh, sophomore students was just elected to the state party committee of the Republican Party, 150 folks, and he's talking very much about how to deliver good government um, as being a part of what they're doing, and and it certainly echoes what we've seen in the few days of Brian Kemp's administration. Um, Our our friend Michael Owens, uh, who's on this show frequently, the chairman of the Democratic Party of Cobb County, is uh, watching us on Facebook and has made a couple of remarks. Uh, and Michael says, uh, Jim, this election wasn't a top-down, any kind of top-down mandate. It was the state committee realizing it's time for change, voting members for that race who were elected in 2014. It was these members who were much older uh, that elected a smart, savvy, hardworking group of young leaders. So he's suggesting mm. this wasn't some upstarts who made this happen. It was a recognition by traditional party and, leaders. And, and, and he's absolutely right. And, and, and the one thing I would, I would emphasize here is that uh, uh, DuBose Porter, uh, the, the exiting uh, chairman of the state party, uh, was in many ways a, a mentor to Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm. yes. uh, who's, who, who followed him as the Democratic leader. Okay, uh, clarify a couple things. We've got some interesting comments on Facebook Live. I don't usually get a chance to look at it as it's unfolding, but I am today. And um, a couple of people wanted to know what you meant, uh, Jim, when you talked about the diversity that Ted Terry represents. And of course, Clarkston is a center for refugee relocation, the largest population of refugees from many, many countries in the state of Georgia you, you, is what you, you name, meant by you, that. You name a country, and there's a there's a, a former resident living yeah, in Yeah, it's a remarkable there. place to visit. Uh, by the way, uh, a caddy remark, but not, not a bad joke. Ted Cormack says about Brian Kemp in terms of the, the problems that the snow could create. Can't he just drive his pickup around and pick people up? <laughs> yeah. well, he, he might do is, that. Is, is it a 4 by 4 Yes. <laughs> but, you know, that would be a great thing to do. I think he could get some uh, points for that. Karen, you, probably ju- so. you yeah. just cannot, Karen, escape the commercials that you've run during a campaign. <laughs> no, you cannot. You have to stick with that. If that's part of your messaging... Maybe you should use it again, yes. And <laughs> right. I saw salt trucks actually on my way down here getting ready. Absolutely. So. It, it, there is no question, to go back to that just for the moment, that we're going to watch a state really energized in a whole new way to deal with this. Jim, are, the Republicans are aware that Democrats are newly energized, that they think the Stacey Abrams election, which brought her within you know, 50,000, 60,000 votes of getting Kemp uh, on the ropes, uh, was going to help them, but the Republicans are not going to take this lying down. No, no, and 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 we saw a a big sign of this over the weekend. You had a, an op-ed piece by uh, State Senator Ben Watson of Savannah, a Republican, uh, in the sixth paragraph down. It was a long list of of uh, of. It was a long to-do list. Sixth paragraph down, he says, and and this is one of the few times that I've heard a, a Republican. Uh, 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 admit it, uh, t- broached the topic publicly. He said, we've got 500,000 people without health insurance and we need to address it. And he is, he suggested that the, that Republicans in the state capitol are in pursuit of a, uh, not Medicaid expansion. They can't, they don't call it Medicaid mm-hmm. expansion, uh, but a Medicaid waiver mm-hmm. along the lines of Indiana, uh, which includes some uh, some uh, work requirements and a few other things, but it d- did add a hundred hundreds of thousands of people uh, to the health insurance rolls. Yeah, the, the and of course Mike Pence was governor of Indiana when they did in fact expand Medicaid and called it that under the Affordable Care Act. And you're right, Jim. It's it includes. Um, it it does include a work requirement of some sort. I think Georgia doesn't Georgia already have. A, a, uh, a limited work requirement. Many, many counties do. Yeah. I think. Okay. That's what I thought. Um, I was just going to add one one other thing that, from what I heard from somebody who contends that they know things about um, the Kemp campaign or the Kemp administration and going forward is that they're already strategizing that they're going to be running against Stacey Abrams again in four years and that they want to have a record of accomplishment. They know the campaign that got them in this time will not work in four years. 
you can't run as an outsider when you're the incumbent governor. So um, they're very serious about getting good government stories out, um, possibly the Medicaid waiver and other things. Um, it, I thought that was interesting, Karen, to, to hear a Republican uh, telling Chris that he thinks they're getting ready for Stacy in four years. I yep. wonder if they really are getting ready for Stacey Abrams in four years. Well, Increasingly. I think that's, you know, because she hasn't announced what her intentions yeah. are for sure. But, I mean, I think discussions amongst Democrats would probably like to see her run in two years, sure. right, to go ahead and contest against David Perdue because it makes sense. She has her operation in order and people are very familiar with her and she can go ahead and run. So I I doubt that the Kemp's are banking everything on a rematch, yeah, yeah. but I do probably agree that a lot of Republicans are thinking about this good government idea and the national Democrats ran on health care as their top issue. And Georgia can't ignore that as we move to this purplish uh, domain for 2020. Yeah, that that seems to make complete sense to me. Uh, it's going to be fun. What do you, Jim? You're down at the Capitol and you're talking to these people uh, regularly. Do you imagine? And, and we should remind our listeners of something very important here. Brian Kemp, the governor, whether it's Brian Kemp, Nathan Deal, a Democrat, should a Democrat win, no longer has the power to expand Medicaid by by an executive. Order. The legislature took that away from the governor a couple years ago to pr- actually to protect him. 2014, I believe, and the bill was dropped in the middle of that blizzard. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember that. So now the legislature is has to vote on any change in Medicaid. Right, right. Any 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 sub- substantive change in there? So you'd have. So that's why that's why uh, Ben Ben Watson, uh, the fellow that we just mentioned in, in the legislature, he's he's the new chairman of the state health and human services committee. Any legislation like that would be going through his committee, if not originating in his committee. Uh, so for him to say that out loud and in public, I think is a very important thing. Well, and and that was where I was heading with with the question I wanted to ask, which was as you talk to all these uh, legislators. And, and the people that work with them, are we hear, are you hearing anything about when we're likely to see what the governor would like to accomplish, what he means when he says, yes, we should look at waivers? When do we expect I, I this think, to happen? I think he's going to be rather cautious on this. I think he's going to let the legislature take the first step. Uh, and and it sounds like it sounds like uh, the the initiative will will will. Uh, will hit first in the Senate, which is is the more ideologically uh, uh, pure, if you will, in, in, in Republican ter- terms. So if it if it survives the Senate, then it's it's uh, I think it would have an easier time in the House. OK, we're going to watch that unfold. Uh, it's certainly coming, as you point out, Republicans realize they've got to do something uh, along those lines. You get the last word yes. before the break. Audrey. Well, I was going to say, it also feels like that all of the representatives, regardless of what party, understand that this is a significant, it's a real um, problem. And one of the ways they can give themselves cover in the future politically is by working on it in a bipartisan fashion, figuring out what they can do, and then getting it done, moving on to other things. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And uh, when we come back, Uh, We're going to take up a number of items. The shutdown, the government's now reopened, but who knows what's going to happen in the next three weeks. Uh, Governor Kemp, talking to lawmakers, makes a remark about medical marijuana. That's pretty interesting, and I'm glad Galloway doesn't know what he's going to say. We'll get to that and a lot more after the break. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. President Trump has one message for Congress. Wall should not be controversial. The deal to reopen the government does not include funding for a wall, but Trump's still pushing for one. Every career Border Patrol agent I have spoken with has told me that walls work. They do work. I'm Audie Cornish, where the wall fight goes from here this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us for All Things Considered this afternoon from 4 to 7 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. 
Welcome back to Political Rewind. Karen Owen joins us. She uh, teaches political science out of West Georgia. And I didn't point out your first appearance on the show. We're glad to have you here. Thank you very much for inviting me. And as long as this is your first appearance, let's expand on your biography just a little bit. You worked on Capitol Hill in Washington. Yes. For? For Representative Nathan Deal at the time. Okay. That was right after I graduated from my UGA. And before that, you had been, uh, uh, you got your master's in political sciences or public affairs. What did you call it? Public administration. Okay, public administration. And she's got a book under her. Yeah, that was the next thing. You've written about gender politics? Yes. So I have a book out, um, Women uh, Office Holders and the Role Models Who Pioneered the Way. And it discusses how... Women who want to advance to higher office need to have a role model, someone that they can actually um, emulate and follow their path to the next level. What's the title? Women, Office Holders, and the Role Models Who Pioneer the Way. All right. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Audrey Haynes is uh, with us, professor of political science out at University of Georgia. We're glad that uh, she joins us with some frequency. And from Macon at Mercer University, Chris Grant, the head of the political science department there. Hi, Chris. Hi, and I ought to mention there's only four of us in our political science department, so it's not really being head of much, um, and we... It's the sort of true straws, and I got the shortest one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sounds more impressive than it is. Well, let's let it be impressive, Chris. We like... You impress us when you're on this show. (laughs) Uh, In fact, Chris, let's start with you. We... um, Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to this uh, Brian Kemp... Uh, a soundbite that we've got to play, and then we're going to go to the shutdown. So, Chris, uh, Scott Slade, who is the host of Lawmakers on GPB-TV at 7 o'clock every night, uh, sat down with Governor Kemp uh, last week to do an extended interview with him. They're going to play most of it tonight on Lawmakers. But among the other things that, that Governor Kemp talked about was uh, Slade asked him a little bit about his feelings about medical marijuana, and here's what the governor said. Well, you know, I've had a, I learned a lot on the campaign trail about that. I talked to a lot of individuals that are very passionate about that issue, some of them on both sides of the issue. But, uh, you know, as a parent of three teenage daughters, I feel the, the parent, the family's pain that's dealing with this. And, you know, if it's, if it's helping, you know, they're going to they're gonna do what they can to take care of their children. I certainly, uh, you know, I sympathize and empathize uh, with them on that uh, issue, and I support research-based extension. I think, thankfully, now there is some research going on in this field that will give us some good data to show us and kind of tell us how we move forward. So that's Governor Kemp on medical marijuana. Chris, he's opening the door at least a crack, if not more, for the notion that, number one, perhaps he might be open to hearing legislation that would allow for, he's saying research, but maybe cultivation of some sort here in Georgia so that people who have uh, the uh, licensing to, to obtain uh, the cannabis oil for their, for their families can, can get it locally. It sounds like he's got a fairly open mind for the time being, and there might be some creative work in that area. Well, I think it's an issue that actually a lot of Republicans are interested in and are supportive of um, what we might see as the liberal position. Um, I also think he's being very pragmatic right from his inaugural address to his State of the State address. He's really setting down this very um, practical, pragmatic tone that we're going to look at everything and we're going to try to be as fair-minded as possible. And I think it's a good strategy, quite frankly. Jim, we are going to see bills about medical marijuana expansion on the uh, agenda to this session. Right. We've, I know we're going to see uh, something on hemp legislation yep. uh, because that's been cleared by the, by, by the federal government now. So, uh, but that, that really did, that's, that's, uh, that's uh, a related plant, plant with no THC. Uh, the, the the cultivation issue is is the big one. The question is, does it is it done under the auspices of a university uh, research program? Uh, and that's that kind of gets at one of the 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 big failings of marijuana that has spent so much time on the Schedule One list of federal banned drugs that nobody really knows enough about it. Yeah, yeah. And up until recently, I think we had one university. I can't miss it. Mississippi, I think. Yeah, Mississippi was the only uh, uh, university in the country that was uh, licensed to be able to do, grow and do research on medical marijuana, on marijuana in general. So 
when that's why I thought it was interesting, Karen, to hear the governor say that he's interested in research on marijuana. That's what I mean by I think there's sort of at least a little opening for those advocates who want to see uh, more liberal uh, statutes here that would allow medical marijuana to become easier to obtain and use. And I think Chris is right when he talks about the governor's taking this much more practical first step of looking first at research and then what we can learn, utilize that to then move forward to have the discussion on what can help for cultivation. Also, if he's talking to some of these rural farmers who just experienced problems with their pecan or pecan (laughs) growth, right, and and devastation, like, is there an alternative to help get them going before those trees are up and fully, you know, producing again? So there can be a conversation, I think, amongst the next step there, I think, throughout that rural Georgia and not just think about it as a metro Atlanta type of issue. Okay, interesting. Uh, Yeah, I think it's very cross-cutting. Audrey, in the middle of this show on Friday, literally on the air live, when uh, President Trump walked into the Rose Garden and said he was proud, proud to announce that the government shutdown was over thanks to an agreement between the Democratic House and the White House, and the president got how much out of that deal? Not a lot, but, you know, I like I like to call Trump the pride president because he was proud to shut it down. He's proud to open it up. He's got a lot of pride in everything he does. So, so we now have a three-week uh, period, as most people know by now, in which Congress can negotiate with the White House on figuring out how to get a continuing resolution that will last for more than a couple of weeks. Trump is already or or at least uh, members of his administration on the Sunday shows have mm-hmm. already said, uh, Mulvaney being one of them, mm-hmm. yeah, he's prepared to shut things down again. And and he thinks there's only a 50-50 chance that they'll reach an agreement. But I would note they have a lot of really good people on um, the committee, uh, including our own Tom Graves yeah. is on there. And uh, people who come out of the uh, longtime experience of working on immigration. So. <gasps> I had a a, a good conversation with uh, Senator Johnny Isaacson this morning Mm. and Mm. who made who made a a, a couple points. Number one, he said he was one of six uh, Republicans who who kind of indicated they were ready to 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 jump ship by after they after they voted on a Republican bill to 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 end the shutdown. They voted on the Democratic bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he told me that if there's another uh, another pending uh, uh, a shutdown. You're going to see far more mm-hmm. Republicans yep. get get uh, uh, join him. Uh, the other thing he he noted was uh, like Audrey, just like what you said was the 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 thing the, the important thing that happened on Friday was that issue. This issue went to a House Senate Conference Committee, and what it's that does deal. what that does is it pluralizes the leadership of the issue. In, in, in that it's no longer a a mono a mono a mono a womano uh, contest <laughs> between Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi, you've got you've got Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer on one side, you've got you've got Pelosi and uh, Kevin McCarthy on another side, and and Trump really doesn't have a, a formal seat at that table. Yeah, it's what's interesting about what Jim is saying, Karen, is that now. It's it could, the Congress can work on whatever compromise they want to come up with and present it to the president rather than, as Jim says, this struggle between these two powerful forces in Washington. So you're right. You're taking the two big actors out of the sandbox and giving it back to the legislative branch, which is a part of dealing with the appropriations sector. So if we look at that committee that's brought together, most of those are appropriation uh, chair or um, committee members. And so they know the process very well of how to actually negotiate, sit down, and work through these budgetary items. And I think that John McCain might be happy at this moment because it's throwing it back to the actual regular order of legislative affairs. Yeah. And it's it's pulling it out from the purview of the president. Right, but uh, so, Audrey— uh it, th- th- that raises this question, and, and, and Jim's conversation with Johnny Isaacson really leads the way. The Republicans in the Georgia delegation have stood strong with the president throughout this. I, Johnny Isaacson is suggesting—he didn't talk about Georgia's congressional delegation specifically, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But you have to wonder, yes, Georgia's a red state. It's gerrymandered in such a way that most of our 
elected members of the House are in fairly safe districts, are they all, what if the president does threaten another shutdown? Are they, are they going to continue to stand strong with him? Well, uh, that'll be interesting to see. I think that there are quite a few in the leadership that um, uh, if we look at some of the people who voted along with Isaacson, you've got Susan Collins, Cory Gardner, Lamar Alexander, Mitt Yeah, Romney. but let's look at Georgia specifically. Well, that one's harder. I mean, it's just there's a number of them that are so dedicated to Trump. They've been with him for quite some time. I do not know how much they'll move. This is this is a thought that I'm to- toying with. And, and since we've got three political scientists at the table, I think I, I can I can run a by and see if see if it holds water. But I think that what uh, Johnny Isaacson did might have we might look back at, at this in two years and say that he saved uh, David Perdue's bacon and he saved Rob Woodall's bacon. Mm. Uh, because if you look at if you if you look at there are there are two million full-time federal workers, civilians, in this nation. There are 1.3 million, uh, 1.3 million military personnel. Okay, ninety-seven thousand of those live in Georgia. Mm-hmm. All right, the the margin between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams last year was fifty-five thousand votes, and if that if this that shutdown had gone on for another week or another month, then you can. Then I think that the, the, those those two million federal workers become a voting block, and that's in much much like I, I, I'm reaching for a parallel. It's it's, it's a, f- a little bit further back, but I would say 1864, and and the politicization of uh, the soldiers in the field, uh, Union soldiers in the field that carried uh, carried Abraham Lincoln uh, to, to re-election. Wow. All right, we're going to watch it. Karen or Chris? Chris, do you want to weigh in on that? I, well, I think that's a, an interesting way of framing it. And I think I was thinking about Rob Woodall. And then as soon as Jim mentioned um, David Perdue, I was thinking about that again. Um, where do you go with this? And I think that there is a – I think that the president damaged his hand in doing any negotiations um, going forward. I mean, we watched President Obama. His strongest two years were his first two years. We know that in the second two years of a presidential term, um, if even a first term, the president loses um, influence. Um, but this president seems to have given up a ton of influence through this whole event. Um, and uh, he's almost made himself inconsequential, um, which opens the door for someone like Mitch McConnell to become far more consequential. And Mitch McConnell, love him, hate him, whatever. He is a very adept Politico. He knows how to make things work if he wants to. And I think he's he's conservative with a small C, waiting for that time when he can start to um, be able to maneuver more effectively. Um, and the president may have opened that door very wide at this point. Also, to the potential of primary challenge. Yeah, I mean, increasingly, Karen, it, I mean, the, the president's approval numbers have dropped dramatically in, in most polls. Not every poll, right. but but they've yes. dropped somewhat dramatically, and it he certainly is putting himself in a position for the potential for a primary fight, which no one would have expected uh, a year ago. Right, and I think that's true that he is uh, the AP reported that his approval now is at thirty four percent, but if you look at some uh, national averages, you're looking at the low forties, forty one. Yeah. I think was kind of the top I had seen, but I went back and I thought about uh, when President Carter. Right after his midterm, he was looking at about an upper 40s approval rating. But going into that midterm in 78, he was in uh, the mid 40s. And then in 79, I looked back and he was in the 30s and 40s. He had really low approvals. And then he, of course, drew primary opposition. Edward Kennedy was stepped up. Stepped up. So Trump stays in these low 30s, upper 30s, he could definitely attract probably a moderate Republican saying, hey, yes. this is a time to step in and and show a different look for the Republicans. And he's more, he is pretty likely to stay in those low numbers. I, I mean, that is typical. You know, what, what Chris said, it's like the, the first two years seem to have been a squandered opportunity. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move yep. on. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to write. Chris, did you want to... F- no, I was agreeing. Okay. I think they're, they're very wise thoughts said much better than I say them. So. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, real quick, we talked last week about the fact that uh, Jim... The, the Lucy McBath has already drawn a very vocal uh, 
declared Republican opponent for that 6th District congressional seat. Brandon Beach. Brandon Beach. Popular guy up in North Fulton County, which is no longer the center of the district, but still brings a lot of votes his way right, if right. he's the only... He's he's likely to have other Republicans oh, challenge oh, him. Oh, the, far, yes, yes. Right. Could be, a, could be just, you know, a parade of people. Nevertheless, the first one to declare is a pretty popular Republican up that way. Right, right. And uh, he, is, he, is, he, he was, up until 2017, president and CEO of the North Fulton Chamber of Commerce. And he was preceded in that post uh, by, uh, oh, what was her name? Karen Handel. Oh, Karen Handel. <laughs> yeah, Karen, Karen Handel. Karen and, and I will tell you, you know, once once uh, Beach's announcement that he was going to run for this seat came out, we... Uh, we touched base with with uh, with with some uh, some uh, old handle hands, and they said she's mulling it over a comeback. What, you know, Karen Owen, wh- wh- where does the notion if if Karen Handel does d- decide that she wants to try to reclaim that seat, what are the challenges she'll face? So I think one of the first hurdles she will have is the fact that she has already run several campaigns in Georgia. She ran for governor, she ran for U.S. Senate, and then she was elected to Congress, but then she's lost. So she's got those three losses in her, you know, wheelhouse that she's going to have to overcome and come up with a messaging. The hurt, other it, parts, hurts, it hurts you in money, in, in, in fundraising. Yes, it does. And then the other piece I think here, too, is her base in the special election is that Roswell, North Fulton right. base area. That is also Brandon Beach's area. And so if you look, he was he won re-election in, in 2018 with 70% of the vote. But then you go into the Roswell area where Senator Albers is, and he only uh, won with about 52, 53%. 53%. And so if he decides to run, which he may possibly want to because he has such a difficult Senate contest or state Senate contest, then you've got him pulling from that Roswell base. So how can Handel get cut back in and, and continue to build her support when you've got other members who have also attracted attention from her area? The, the way that North Fulton f- uh, flipped in, in many races, Bill, uh, this this last November, you, you're you're. You're seeing a lot of up or out strategies by Republicans that uh, who, who figure that it's time to time to to move up the ladder, or they're going to they're, or or they're going to be vulnerable for defeat uh, if they even seek re-election. You know, all of this um, bodes, I suppose, well for an incumbent in this case, Lucy McBath. If you're going to have all of these long knives out competing for votes in the same perhaps section of a congressional district, it makes and Macbeth is already out raising money and sending emails every day uh, saying there's an election coming up again. So where does she stand in all of this? Is she as vulnerable as Republicans think she is? Well, this is traditionally the point in uh, most political science studies where we say that that, that time after you're reelected when you go up again is your most vulnerable point. Mm-hmm. And if she can survive that, then she's in pretty good shape. But, I mean, she is vulnerable because they'll be paying attention to what she does and she's still new enough at this. She may make a, a freshman mistake or two. May make a freshman mistake. This district but, is also still rated as an R mm-hmm. plus eight by Cook Partisan Voting Index. So it still leans that likely Republican mm-hmm. kind of area. Yep. So it's going to take her really building a coalition to come over okay. that. But national forces may be involved too. But does it? Does my memory serve me correctly that Cook had it as an R plus seven or something when McBath beat her? Yes, and in the special election, <laughs> it was an R fourteen yeah, and so, R ten. So it has been slipping down. Right. But yes, I mean, I think if you look at the the state senators that are representing that area, they're Republican, um, and they won. You know, even fifty three percent, but they've won. And so there's a lot of conversations that that's still not a blue district. All right. Well, this is why two, we— two. So go, go, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was just going to say two things. One is I agree wholly that uh, the more people that get in the race on the Republican side, the better it is for Lucy McBath. The other thing I would mention is that Lucy McBath will be running for a reelect in a presidential year. Mm-hmm. And that should help her, although we saw almost presidential turnout in this last— last state election. Um, and then my last thing with Karen Handel is I, I call it the Guy Milner rule. When you've lost twice <laughs> closely, the third time is usually a done deal. But um, running too many times also doesn't help you. And I'm worried the Karen Handel is overused at the moment. She might be wiser to sit out for a while and try to go back in a different way. Uh, or, 
Chris, you get the last word of uh, our segment. Okay. We, got, we got to take our second break of the show. We'll be back in just a moment. On the next Fresh Air, exploring the world beneath our feet. Dave Davies talks with journalist Will Hunt about his fascination with things below the surface of the earth. It's taken him into sewers and subway tunnels in New York, the catacombs of Paris, underground cities in Turkey, nuclear bunkers and abandoned mines, and caves where ancient societies practiced religious rites. His new book is Underground. Join us. Fresh airs this afternoon at 3 here on GPB. And you can listen live at gpbnews.org. I'm Stephen Fowler, GPB's politics reporter. I bring you the latest from the state capitol, covering issues like voting rights, education, and tackling rural health care. It's information that deepens your understanding of our government and the people who make it work. It's not inside baseball, it's insight into how policies change how we live. You can find my stories on the air and online at gpb.org politics. Thanks for listening. Um, Jim Galloway, the shutdown is over with, but at the very tail end of it, Atlanta's attorney, Chris Ray, now the director of the FBI, appointed by President Trump, of course, decided to make a statement to all of the employees of FBI. I'm assuming, I don't know this for a fact, but if you listen to the whole five plus minutes of it, he he's making the point that we're more active in trying to fight for you to get money than you might realize. So I'm assuming there must have been some, you know, talk at FBI, what are they doing to help us or whatever. Right, right. It was, uh, and, and you have to remember the context here. Uh, this was the, the, Friday was the second missed payday right. for, for federal workers. And, uh, of course, uh, the FBI is a premier federal agency. And... And that's been under siege in many ways well, uh, from, he, from 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 uh, from the White House. And and Chris Ray, I want to play uh, a bit of what he said because even though the shutdown is over, you're right. It points us. It points out just how uh, sensitive the FBI is right now to what it is going through in the political arena. Here's Christopher Ray on a video he made for his own employees. Making some people stay home when they don't want to and making others show up without pay, it's mind-boggling, it's short-sighted, and it's unfair. It takes a lot to get me angry, but I'm about as angry as I've been in a long, long time. Now, I know there's some question about why you haven't seen the FBI leadership out there in the press fighting the good fight over the past five weeks. But there are real costs to doing that for us as an institution and for our 110-year-old brand. You know better than most that we've been thrust into the political spotlight more than we would have liked over the past few years. And the last thing this organization needs now is its leadership to wade right into the middle of a full-on political dispute. But let me also be very clear, we are actively advocating for you left and right at every level. That's Chris Ray, the Atlanta attorney, now director of FBI. And in the uh, in the, in the part we, we we cut him off uh, before that, but um, uh, he he went on for another minute or so, uh, detailing and making some great detail about what backdoor efforts that yeah, they made right. to get these people paid. Yes, which I thought was extraordinary. Yeah, exactly. They ultimately failed, but he said he had a team working on various inventive ways to come up with some money and the budget, that existing budget to get them paid. So that's Chris Ray making it clear uh, how he feels about the political uh, environment and way it's affecting FBI. Um, Audrey Kamala Harris yesterday yes. announced for president. We don't have time to play the soundbite from her speech, but mm-hmm. it was a stemwinder. She had about 20,000 people in her hometown of Oakland gathered to see her announcement speech. She is uh, charismatic. She's a strong speaker. She knows how to message. Um, it looks like she could be a very formidable candidate for president in the Democratic uh, primaries. Well, it is. And right now, one of the things we're talking about is we used to talk about the invisible primary where everything was sort of done <laughs> behind the back doors, getting your big fundraisers. Now, like we see with uh, Kamala Harris, I've got my personal brand. I'm out there raising awareness. I have got a million people signed up to my small donor uh, pool. 
uh, and she is ready to go. And, and she's she, got her sorority sisters yes. across the country ready to jump in and help her. Uh, a lot of them. I mean, a and a she, pink and green army. Chris, one of the reasons I mentioned Kamala Harris today is because it strikes me, you know, one of the complaints about her is that is she was a former prosecutor. She was a law and, form, a law and order uh, uh, a proponent in a big way. And so the most liberal Democrats don't like her very much. But I think she might play well to Southern Democrats who will like the fact that she knows how to go after Trump and isn't so liberal that they have to reject her out of hand. Absolutely, Bill. I've been saying that I think that she plays better in Arizona, Texas, and Georgia than any other um, Democrat that is potentially um, going out there. That's one strategy to the White House. If you can win all of what Hillary won and won those three states, which is an uphill climb, um, you're president. Um, Vice versa, you know, somebody that plays well in the Pennsylvania Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa could also do well. Um, but a lot of the candidates I don't see doing better than Hillary did in the states they're there. And I, I mean, not saying that the president's well on his way to being reelected, but um, I can see the Democrats being able to sna- snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat or snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory in this one. Well, we're going to have a lot of Democrats in the race. Yeah. I wanted to mention her briefly just because I do think that she's the sort of person who, in fact, there yeah. was a point at which, Jim, she was thinking about perhaps putting her second headquarters, the first in Oakland, a second right here in Georgia. She ended up going to Baltimore, but it tells you she thinks this state could be good for her. And it, and it tells you a little bit about how well they think uh, Stacey Abrams has plowed the ground. Yeah. All right. Yep. We are completely out of time for today's show. And one of the things that means is we're not going to get a chance. We want it, we, we can briefly say that today happens to be the 33rd anniversary of the Challenger disaster January 28th, 1986, Ronald Reagan gave a powerful, powerful short speech, a five-minute speech uh, from the Oval Office. He was supposed to give the State of the Union address. They had to change their plans because of the disaster. We're not going to get a chance to play an excerpt, but you know what, uh, Robert and Tom, can we post a link to the Reagan Challenger speech on uh, our social media platforms? It's easy enough to find, and I think it reminds us of... A president who was not loved by both parties, Jim, but who in moments of crisis knew how to talk to the American people. And the other side. Yeah. Yep. The other side. All right. Chris Grant, Audrey Haynes, Karen Owen, thank you all for being here. Jim Galloway, obviously glad to have you with us as well. Just a quick reminder. We're hoping we're going to be on the air live tomorrow at 2 o'clock. We've got a panel lined up. We're hoping they'll be able to get here, that bad weather doesn't stop us from going on the air. If for some reason we cannot be live, we're going to uh, replay a show we did with the great, great uh, presidential biographer Doris Kearns Goodwin last fall. So one way or the other, Political Rewind will be here with you. All of you who are in the storm area, please be safe and warm. We'll see you again tomorrow, one way or another.